The reading this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that is why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to him, said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given to you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater to the one who sent them. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The word of the Lord. Before I really get into it, uh, I don't want anyone to be disturbed if nearing the end of my sermon I pull out my phone and send a text message because that's to tell my to bring the uh, kids back down here uh, so they can take communion with us because it's not just name tag Sunday. It's the first Sunday of the month. Kids um, have take communion with us or, or see us taking communion. So don't be worried if I'm texting uh, during the sermon. And last time I was supposed to do it, Brian Nelson Phelan was up there and he never got the text. And so uh, that was like a snafu because I thought I had slickly like done it without even looking and it didn't send. So, so just, just all that to say, don't worry when the phone comes out. And in fact, you'll know it's almost near the end. So it might be like this relieving thing to see it, to see it coming out. In fact, that might be a, I'll do that every week. I'll take out my phone. Like it's almost over. Okay. So way back in the year 2006, ought six, I believe we called it. Um, there was an article written in time magazine and it was a dialogue between, uh, Francis Collins 
And he, uh, he was the head of the National Institute of Health, and, and he led this team that was the first to map the human genome. So it was this incredible breakthrough in scientific discovery and human understanding. And then it was a dialogue between him and Richard Dawkins, who's the famous uh, British evolutionary biologist and who has bequeathed to us this notion of the meme. He was, he was the guy who came up with that. So these are two giants of science in, in, the, in the 21st century. And so they were two great men of learning and accomplishment. But the reason time brought them together for conversation was that they're very different in another important respect. And it's, well, uh, Francis Collins is a Christian of the traditional sort. Dawkins is famously or rather infamously not. Uh, Dawkins belongs to the ranks of, of what were called the new atheists. I don't know if it's new anymore, but they were known just not for their unbelief, but their militant disdain for religion. And so time brought them together wondering how could two men who are both eminent scientists have such wildly differing perspectives on belief in God. And at the end of the dialogue, Dawkins' article closes with this, and and Dawkins says something that I think resonates with our passage this morning. He said, I don't see the Olympian gods... So, you know, the gods of, of, of Greek mythology or Jesus coming down and dying on the cross as worthy of that grandeur. And here he's talking about the grandeur of the supernatural. They strike me as parochial. If there is a God, it's going to be a whole lot bigger and a whole lot more incomprehensible than anything any theologian of any religion has ever proposed. And friends, I must say that at least on the point of it striking him as parochial, Dr. Dawkins is 100% correct. But it's even worse than that, because not only did Jesus die on a cross, you know, which, how gauche, we see here in our passage this morning that he washed his disciples' feet. Talk about parochial. It doesn't get any more unworthy of the grandeur of the supernatural than that. Does it? But the only question I have for for Dr. Dawkins would be, who gets to define the supernatural and what's worthy of divinity? Is it some human conception of God, what God must be like, or does God get to define divinity? Because if it is God, then we must ask, what exactly was he up to in Jesus washing the feet of his disciples on that Thursday night 2,000 years ago? What does that teach us about what it means for God to be God and for us to be his followers? And so those are the questions we're going we're gonna to ruminate on this morning. And, and I'm going to look at three different dimensions of this passage. And so the first is what Jesus knew. We see him as the self-aware Savior. And and the second is what Jesus did, the gospel of washing feet. And lastly, what Jesus said, the foot-washing ethic. Right, so first, what Jesus knew. The passage begins with these words. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. And so we see that the first thing that Jesus knew right at the beginning of this passage is he knew what time it was. He knew that his hour had come. And in John, whenever Jesus talks about the hour, he's talking about his passion. He's talking about his suffering and impending death. 
All the way back in John chapter 2, really the first story in Jesus' life at, at the wedding of Cana in Galilee, Jesus says to his mother, she says, you know, do whatever he tells you. And he says, woman, my, my, my hour has not yet come. But now the hour has come. And so Jesus, he gets to work making sure that his disciples have everything that they need in order to understand his death and how he was going to continue to be present with them in the future. And so the next five chapters of John are really Jesus' last will and testament. And all of it happens in this same upper room setting. This is Jesus' version of the Minnesota goodbye. It's the long goodbye. And his, his self-awareness, it first manifests itself in knowing what time it is. And happy is the person who knows what time it is. Knowing what time it is is so valuable in life. Knowing when to take a new opportunity and when to let one pass. Knowing when to press someone on something and when to let it slide. Knowing when to move or when to stay put. Knowing when to end one job and start another. Knowing when to, it's time to ask someone out or it's time to break up. When it's time to work hard and when it's time to take a break. Knowing when it's time to put down roots and when it's time to wander. Knowing if God wants you to stay here or go there. In life, as in comedy, timing is everything. The, the saying I've heard, it's cliche, but it's cliche for a reason, right? The right thing at the wrong time is the wrong thing. And so we would be well, well served to seek to discern what time it is, what time we're in, what season of life we're in. And, and even as a church, that's a question that I'm really pressing into, is, is, is what time is it? It's time for us to be in thinking and planning about what's next, about how we go from where we are, which is good, to what God has for us for this next season that's going to stretch us. And I talked about this. If you were at the annual meeting, which was that two weeks ago? It was two weeks ago, two weeks ago. It feels like last week. It was so great. Three weeks ago? Oh, it was three weeks ago. It felt like last week. So was, that's how great it was. Still riding the high <laughs> off of the annual meeting. It was really great, actually. Um, but, right, I, I talked about how, you know, thinking about growth barriers, and, and, and we've gone over the 75-person barrier, but the next one coming is this 120 barrier, and then 200. And, and, and so, you know, how do we get from where we've been to where we're going, given the realities and limitations and everything that surrounds us? It's an exciting season, but it's a time to think about what, what time is it for us? Because if we don't seize the moment, if we're not aware of the hour, then we could easily miss what God has in store for us. And so blessed is the church that knows what time it is because God's timing is everything. But that's not the only thing Jesus knows. So he knows what time it is. But in verse 3 it says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. So Jesus also knew what he had received from the Father, and he knew where he was from and where he was going. And, and, and this is this incredible level of self-awareness that Jesus had. He knew what time it was. He, he knew what he had. He knew where he was from. He knew where he was going. When I was going through a clinical pastoral education 
um, they call it in, in seminary. And so it's this experience where you basically serve as a chaplain in some capacity um, in a hospital or, or other institutional setting. And, and so um, all the pastors I knew had to go through this while they were going through the, the preparation process for ordination. And as we were going through this experience, it's, it's less about providing really good chaplaincy for uh, the, your patients. You're usually very bad at it at, at the beginning. Um, but it's a really, it's a, it's a process of coming to awareness of yourself. And so while we were going through CPE, as we call it, we were introduced to this thing called the Johari window. And I love, I'll talk, if you hang around me long enough, you'll hear me bring up the Johari window uh, many, many times. And so the Johari window is this exercise where people are asked, they're given a list of 56 adjectives. And then you're asked to say, which of these apply to you? You know, you can be like, you're funny, you're quiet, you know, um, introspective, all these sorts of things. Uh, deceptive, maybe these can be bad things too. Uh, and so you, you list which of these 56 adjectives you think apply to yourself. And then other people who know you are asked to take these same list of 56 adjectives and apply them. Say which of these apply to this person. And then what happens is you sit down and, and they get mapped onto this window. It's a window with four panes, but only three of them really mean anything. There's one fourth. There's the things that you don't list and no one else lists. So that's like the mystery, the subconscious. Maybe that will emerge. But there's the three panes that, 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 that are very revelatory when it comes to self-awareness. And so the first is the adjectives you say about yourself and that other people say about you. And that's called the arena. This is just like who you are. Kind of everyone knows it about you. The next one are things that you lifted, listed about yourself, but that other people didn't. That's called uh, uh, maybe the, the facade, because these are things about yourself that you keep disclosed and don't show to the world. And, and then the third one, which is the really hard one, is things that other people say about you, but that you don't say about yourself. And that's called the blind spot. And it's probably the most painful. And so we did this within our CPE group who were all chaplains for this summer at a hospital. And it was one of the most powerful and revelatory and painful processes that I've ever done. Coming to this growing awareness of who you are and who other people perceive you to be. But it was also one of the most important things that I've ever had to do because it helped me know and understand that who I was and that who I was, I brought with me in this role as a chaplain, and I was going to bring with me as a husband, and I was going to bring as a parent, and I was going to bring um, as a pastor. And so knowing all this helped help me be better in every area of my life. And one thing I, I never appreciated about Jesus before I did this exercise was just how self-aware he was, how much he understood, Right? John tells us that he knew where he was from, so he knew his origin. And he knew where he was going, so he knew his purpose. And he knew that the Father had given everything into his hand, so he was aware of the resources that were at his disposal. And that self-awareness enabled him to do what he had to do and face what he had to face. And we can see that when we're lacking in any one of those areas, it can be a hindrance to us because we're constantly seeking after those answers. You know, where did I really come from? And what's my purpose? And what social, emotional, psychological, you know, physical, spiritual, material resources do I possess? And it's only when we, we begin to be aware of the answer to those questions and we live from them 
that we can move forward with, with the mission that God has for us. And what we learn from Jesus is the more self-aware we are, the more faithful we can be. So that's what Jesus knew. But now I want to bring us back and, and, and look at what Jesus did, which is the gospel of washing feet. So the remarkable thing that John tells us is, so, you know, Jesus knew that he had come from the Father, and the Father had given him all things, John says. Everything's been given into his hands. And so Jesus, knowing that, that's when he says, now is the time for me to wash my disciples' feet. We might expect that knowing everything that Jesus knew, he would have demanded that his disciples bow down and worship him, that they wash his feet, that, that, that they bring out the you know, crown and start lauding him. Because that's, would have been worthy, that's what would have been worthy of the grandeur of the supernatural. But instead, Jesus does something that was so parochial, even beneath parochial, that it was embarrassing to everybody in the room. He got up in the middle of the meal, stripped down, put on an apron, and began washing the feet of his disciples. And so here's what we need to understand, that Jesus was, was assuming the posture of and doing the work of a slave. In fact, in later Jewish sources, it was said that, that Jewish slaves who had Jewish masters shouldn't be made to wash their master's feet. That if you had a Gentile slave, that was their job. And of all the accounts in the ancient world of slaves washing feet of their masters, almost always it was a, a female slave who was given this task. And in the rare instances where we see a free person washing the feet of someone else, it was always this expression of, of total and utter devotion and loyalty to someone else. And so the normal practice would have been for the host to provide a basin, and the disciples would have washed their own feet. And it would have been incredible even if, if one of the disciples had started washing Jesus' feet. That's why it's so remarkable when Mary washes Jesus' feet and wipes them with her tears. And they were so taken aback. But what Jesus does here is, is literally unthinkable. The master becoming like a servant. And that's why Peter, he objects so strenuously to when Jesus gets to him and he's doing this. And so if we were to translate this woodenly from the Greek, he says, No, not will you ever wash my feet forever. No. So what Jesus is doing is he's preaching the gospel with actions and not words. And the good news of Jesus Christ is that he came to turn the world upside down. In the old world, the old age, the powerless served the powerful. And Jesus is showing what life looks like in the kingdom of God. And he says you can't participate in the life of the new world while still acting like you're living in the old one. And furthermore, Jesus is showing that the gospel is about what he does for us and not about what we could ever do for him. Jesus serves us without us asking him to do it. Jesus even washes the feet of the one he knows is going to betray him and the one he knows is going to deny him. The gospel is about you know, Jesus coming down from heaven, taking on the form of a slave, and suffering the ultimate humiliation of all, death on a cross. This is what loving his own to the end, the utmost, the ultimate, looks like. 
Peter objects. You'll never wash my feet. And Jesus responds, unless I wash you, you can have no share with me. In other words, if I can't forgive your sins, you can't have my presence. And here I just want to quote the, the, the commentator, Dale Bruner, what, what he says, because I think it so beautifully summarizes what's happening here. He says, there has never been a stronger defense of the evangelical religion of grace over the seemingly more moral religion of deserving good conscience and good works. Jesus' salvation is free and undeserved, or it is nothing. And we should then forget the Christian faith. We can never earn this standing, this cleansing. We must resist the instincts of our proud humility and our upright conscience and let Jesus be our Lord and Savior by being, as he clearly wishes to be here, our servant. Jesus' service teaches us that the gospel turns the world upside down. That, that it's about what Jesus does for us, even though we could never do anything to deserve it. And in Jesus' response to Peter's request for more, we see another important thing, that there's nothing to add to it. Peter says, well, don't, if you're going to do it, don't just wash my feet, my whole body too. And Jesus says, no, what I've done for you is enough. In the words of another preacher that I heard somewhere, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And here's another truth, a hard, bitter truth for us that we see in this passage, is that true humility does not begin with service. It begins with the readiness to receive it. Because to accept service is to acknowledge some form of dependence. And this is our situation as human beings. We think we're independent. We think we're in a position. You know, we want to be in the position to serve first. But our plight is that we are totally and completely dependent upon the grace of God and the work of Jesus on our behalf. Otherwise, we are completely lost. And so that's the foot-washing gospel of what Jesus did. And the last thing we're going to look at is what Jesus said. And that's the foot-washing ethic that he left his disciples, which comes in verses 12 through 17. So Jesus says, okay, you just saw what I did. I got your attention. And you're no better than me, are you? This is a rhetorical question. It's like, okay, of course not. He says, well, then you go do it too. And Jesus says in verse 15 that he washed their feet to provide them with an example of how to act towards one another. And, and the word for example is the same word for a pattern. And so if you've ever sewed, you know, you know what it's like to, to follow a pattern or it, it's almost like instructions. So if you've ever assembled Ikea furniture, you know what it's like to follow a, a pattern. Um, and following a pattern, I have this Katie... I'm going to give this back to you after the service. This is Bjorn. He brought this. It's an extreme. It's a dot to dot, but it's an extreme dot to dot. And I don't know if you can see it, but there's so many dots on this page. It's crazy. It's, it's just crazy. There's uh, over a thousand dots on this page. And you connect these dots and they create these pictures of um, beautiful different sites from around the United States of America. So it's an extreme Dot to dot. It's, it's following a pattern. And so Jesus says, okay, follow this pattern. Connect these 
thoughts. This is how you're supposed to live in light of the gospel. Do this. Serve each other. And why is that so hard to do? Because of pride. Pride. And the thing about pride is it's looking inward. And humility looks outward. But you want to know how to be in Christian community? Be willing to be insignificant for Jesus for a long time. Now, that's not that hard to do somewhere like this. We're a small church. No one cares much about what we do here. And whatever you do here, it's not going to generate headlines. No one's going to notice. But even in this small, tiny setting, being willing to be insignificant for Jesus is a powerful practice. And I see it all the time. He's not here today, so I can't embarrass him. But last Saturday night, I got a remarkable text from one Thomas Howlett. I call him Thomas Krebs. (laughs) And Thomas texted me, asking me if he could help me clear the snow from church the next day. And I was just blown away because I I had like emailed people who I knew lived around the church to see if they could come help me. And I had forgotten to email Thomas. So he out of the blue said, can I help you remove snow? And every Saturday afternoon, Bob Brody comes in and sets up for Sunday morning. And every week, it seems, Dar comes with a cub bag filled with more hats and mittens to give to Ryan Hoosier for the homeless, right? And Tiffany puts together the weekly email. The thing I hated to do the most. <laughs> she does it. And there's, there's dozens of other examples. But these are just small ways that people in our midst are willing to be insignificant for Jesus Christ. And that's a gospel ethic that matches the gospel message. So might we all worry more about how faithful we are in service than how we might gain some sort of status. Status follows service, and service almost never comes from those who seek status. So that's what Jesus knew, what he did, and what he said. But when I think about the beauty of the gospel that we see in this passage... um, I found uh, these words from St. Augustine uh, that I wanted to share with all of you because I think he says what I'm trying to say, but he says it much, much better. And he's talking about this and and saying, well, why why should this surprise you that Jesus would, would take upon this position of a servant, a slave? So he says to his congregation, but why should we wonder that he rose from supper and laid aside his garments who being in the form of God, emptied himself. And why should we wonder if he girded himself with a towel, who took on him the form of a servant and was found in the likeness of a man? And why wonder if he poured water into a basin that he used to wash his disciples' feet, who poured his blood upon the earth to wash away the filth of their sins? Why wonder if with the towel in which he was girded, he wiped the feet he had washed who with the very flesh that clothed him laid a firm pathway for the footsteps of his evangelists. In order, indeed, to gird himself with the towel, he laid aside the garments he wore. 
But when he emptied himself in order to assume the form of a servant, he did not lay down what he had, but assumed that which he did not have before. When he was about to be crucified, he was indeed stripped of his garment. And when he was dead, he was wrapped in linen cloths. And all that suffering of his is for our purification. When, therefore, about to suffer the last extremities of humiliation, he here illustrated beforehand its friendly compliances, not only to those for whom he was about to endure death, but to him also who had resolved to betray him to death. Because so great is the beneficence of human humility that even divine majesty was pleased to commend it by his own example. For proud humans would have perished eternally, had they not been found by the lowly God. For the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. And as he was lost by imitating the pride of the deceiver, let him now, when found, imitate the Redeemer's humility. For proud humans would have perished eternally had they not been found by the lowly, dare I say, parochial God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.